Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. The destruction of Babylon mentioned in chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, is now described in greater detail. The, quote, great prostitute, end quote, called Babylon represents the early Roman Empire, with its many gods and the blood of Christian martyrs on its hands. The water that we'll read about stands for either sea commerce or a well-watered, that is, well-provisioned city. Well, the great prostitute represents the seductiveness of the governmental system that uses immoral means to gain its own pleasure, its own prosperity and advantage. In contrast to the prostitute, Christ's bride, the church, is pure and obedient. The wicked city of Babylon contrasts with the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Now, the original readers probably rather quickly identified Babylon with Rome, but Babylon also symbolizes any system that is hostile to God. The angel took John into the wilderness to see the prostitute in her reality. The scarlet beast is either the dragon... Uh, that we find over in uh, chapter 12, or uh, the beast out of the sea described in uh, chapter 13. Sometimes we can only get a clear view of reality when we step back from our daily lives and see the patterns of evil and sin around us. Retreats, conferences, and days of prayer and fasting can help us extricate ourselves from jobs, newspapers, and television and bring us to new spiritual heights. So take time to view the reality of your life and evaluate its direction and activities. Do these glorify God and renew you to serve others? You know, throughout history, people have been killed for their faith. Over the last century, millions have been killed by oppressive governments, and many of those victims were believers. The woman's drunkenness here shows her pleasure in her evil accomplishments and her false feeling of triumph over the church. But... Every martyr who has fallen before her sword has only served to strengthen the faith of the church. Persecution is by no means a thing of the past. Christians in many parts of the world know that faith in Christ amounts to a death sentence. Believers who live in places free of such persecution must not forget to pray for their brothers and sisters in Christ in those difficult parts of the world. There are some truly tough places. As we ponder the identity of the seven kings and the emergence of the ten kings, we have to see John's theme of worldly power and its ultimate ineffectiveness against God and his people. Their authority only lasts, quote, for one brief moment, end quote, symbolizing its brevity and ultimate destruction. As Christians, have we become infatuated with the worldly power of movie stars, sports celebrities, political coalitions, and world economic forces? Are you craving the power and prestige that position, wealth, and connections offer? Well, if so, you are an easy target for Satan's great deception. See, worldly power is Satan's trap. The desire for it can turn us away from God. Worship only God and make it your strongest desire to serve Him. And now let's begin our reading today here in the New Testament. December 26th, the New Testament, Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bulls came over and spoke to me, John. 
Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Why are you so amazed? the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive, but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings, and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Then the angel said to me, The waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out His purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 21. Well, sometimes our burdens can seem more than we can bear, and we wonder how we can go on. David stands at this bleak intersection of life's road and meditates on the Lord, the great burden bearer. God is able to lift us up because, number one, His greatness is beyond discovery. Number two, He does mighty acts for each generation. Number three, he's full of majestic, glorious splendor. Four, he does awe-inspiring deeds. Five, he is righteous. Six, he's kind, merciful, patient, loving, and compassionate. Number seven, he rules over an everlasting kingdom. It will never be defeated or go away. Number eight, he's our source, the source of all our daily needs. 
Number nine, he's righteous and kind in all his dealings. Number ten, he remains close to those who call on him. Number eleven, he hears our cries and rescues us. Listen, if you're bending now under a burden and feel that you're about to fall, turn to God for help right now because he's ready to lift you up and bear your burden. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 21, a psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all His creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps His promises. He is gracious in all He does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything He does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on Him. Yes, to all who call on Him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love Him, but He destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord, and may everyone on earth bless His holy name forever and ever. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 32. If you have been a fool by being proud or plotting evil, cover your mouth in shame. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesChanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio and have a blessed day. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Good morning. Right on. It's good to see everybody today. This week is uh, week three of our current uh, series that we're calling Rest, Finding uh, Joy and Peace in the Gospel of Jesus. So if you missed uh, the last two weeks, 
I encourage you to go back and you can listen to those sermons on the website, uh, therefugechurch.org, or if you've got a smartphone and you want to download the app, that's free and you can listen to it there. But the big idea is that we're, we're taking four weeks following the major themes of the Bible and showing how that pertains to deep rest in the gospel of Jesus, in the good news of Jesus. <clears throat> so, so week one, we talked about how you know, our starting point for change, our starting point for transformation, our starting point for healing and rest, that has to be God. Our starting point has to be God. We have to start with God, not with us. And so what, what does God say? How has God revealed himself? What does the Bible say? That's the big idea there. And so last week, we talked about the reality of sin and how sin has absolutely fractured everything. How sin has affected everything. There's nothing that sin hasn't affected. We said last week that true saving faith produces a people that are repentant. So what does that mean? That true Christians will be an honest people. That true Christians will be an honest people, a people that repent of their sin on a regular basis. That's what we're saying. True Christians are marked by gradual, consistent growth into Christ-likeness. That slowly, steadily, painfully, we're becoming more like Jesus and who Jesus is. And so what we know is that repentance means a total change. A total change from doing what I want to do, from doing what we want to do, to doing what God desires. It means confessing our sins to God and to other believers, to other Christians. This is the mark of an authentic Christian community. Not so we can judge one another, not, uh, one another, not so that we can just beat each other up or so that we can, we can bear heavily on one another, but so that we can actually lift up each other's burdens. We can, we can walk with one another. We can lift up each other's arms, if you will. And that the gospel would be advanced, but also that we would grow to become more like Jesus, that we would become more like Christ. And so week one, we looked at gospel rest in the context of creation, and and then our starting point, where we begin on this journey, needs to be with God. And last week, we talked about sin. We talked about the fall. We talked about how repentance needs to happen within the life of every person in order for God to deal with our sin problem. And so we're calling this week's sermon, Redemptive Rest. We're looking at what Jesus means for our redemption. And so what we know is that redemption means the act of being saved from sin or error or evil. And our text for today is uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. So if you want to read that with me or you can follow along on the screen. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. And it says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden, my burden is light. This is such a comforting text, isn't it? It's an invitation. It's a wonderful invitation. These these are the words that deep down, I think if we were honest with ourselves and others, this is what we all are longing for. This is what we're all searching for. This is the real solution to the aching in every one of our hearts and every one of our souls. Because every other religion, every other ideology, it screams this, do, produce, make more money, be better, 
Work hard. Find the cosmic happiness within yourself. Remove all of your desire. And Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It's beautiful. It's unique to everything else that's in the world. And so there are, there are so many different ways that we can unpack this, but, but what I want to do is just follow a simple pattern that we find right in this text and, and ask ourselves, how is this playing out in my life? How is this playing out in our lives? And so after, after this morning, some of us will realize that we haven't centered our lives on God, but we've, we've centered our lives on ourselves. You know, we didn't start with God, we started with us. And as a result, we need to repent, we need to turn to Christ. But, but here's the formula that we're going to walk through this morning together. It's simple, we find it right in the text. Jesus says three things, three invitations. He says, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. And then he gives us a promise as the result of that. And he says, what this will produce, what these three invitations, if you do so, what this will produce is a light burden and soul rest. So we're going to break down each one of these points. First, we have this invitation. Come to me. Come to me. We've said this many times, but we have to understand that the good news of Jesus, that the the gospel message, that Christ's message demands a response. It demands a response. We don't have the choice not to choose. We cannot stay on the fence when it comes to the gospel. We cannot be apathetic because Jesus' message demands a response. So we can't move on without noticing and dealing with this action-packed phrase, come to me. If we fail to do this, then nothing else really matters. We can't skip this point. So we've seen that God made everything, that God called everything good in Genesis, but then we also saw that we chose to be our own gods, that we disobeyed the creator God, and that, and that sin, as a result, entered the world and fractured everything. So how could this world be made right? What must happen in order for man, in order for us to be reconciled to a perfect God? The answer is Jesus. We must respond to Jesus. Our response must be that of faith. Believing he's the son of God and placing our lives in submission to the word of God, the Bible. Without coming to Jesus, we'll never find this this kind of rest that we're talking about. Without doing this, what, what happens is we're just lost in our own sin. We're lost in our own folly and without hope of a future with God. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's one of the most you know, pointed texts of, of Jesus saying, no, I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a, you know, a guy that, that likes to do mercy for people and likes to care for those. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And so we don't accept Jesus as the way and then move on to other things in order to live a happy life. We don't accept Jesus as sort of a religious figure that we embrace when it makes us feel better and then we fill in the rest of our life with, you know, we fill in the rest of the gaps with various beliefs and ideologies. Jesus is the way to God, but he's also the life that we all desire and he is truth. 
So Jesus is truth. Last week, if you were here, we, beat, we uh, briefly introduced the idea of postmodernism and relativistic truth. And, and in a nutshell, what that means is that the fact that many people in our culture believe this idea that absolute truth doesn't exist. That truth is something that's culturally constructed. But then you have, you have this text. See, if, if we believe the Bible, we can't believe that because right in the text we just read, you have Jesus here saying, I am truth. I am the truth. You want truth? Come to Jesus. And you might think this seems so simple or this seems too easy or this seems oversimplified. And listen, what we have to understand is that ultimately truth isn't just a doctrine or a right belief. Truth isn't a religious system. Truth is not that we in and of ourselves are a bunch of gods. Truth is not a political idea. Truth isn't, you know, whatever works for you is true. Truth is a person and his name is Jesus. And this is so simple, but don't let it fool you because it requires a change of everything in us. How so? It requires a change from you being in the center of your life to Jesus being in the center of your life. And this has vast implications to how we view relationships, to how we view our resources, to how we view sex, to how we view everything. It has vast implications. It requires that instead of living for me or you living for you, we live for Jesus. So that's our first point, the invitation that Jesus has come to me. And the second invitation, the second point, he says, take my yoke. What does this mean? <clears throat> this will be on the screen, but what do we mean by yoke? And I'm going to read to you what the ESV study Bible says regarding this. It says, yoke, the wooden frame joining two animals, usually oxen, for pulling heavy loads, was a metaphor for one's subjection to another and a common metaphor in Judaism for the law. The Pharisaic interpretation of the law with its extensive list of proscriptions had become a crushing burden, but was believed by the people to be of divine origin. Jesus' yoke of discipleship, on the other hand, brings rest through simple commitment to him. See, what you had was, you had the Old Testament, um, which the Jewish people you know, adhered to, but then you also had hundreds of years of what they called the oral traditions, which were additional requirements that the Jewish leaders had made up in order to be clean before God. And so what you had were countless lists, countless requirements, countless rules, and it was this heavy yoke. It was a heavy, heavy burden to try and live up to all these things. And 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's interesting. Again, the ESV has some great wisdom to add to this verse. It reads, God's love in his people gives them the desire to love and please him. So with eagerness, they keep his commandments. Rightly understood and followed, God's commandments bring believers great joy and freedom. Not a sense of oppression, so here, here, this is what we see, that following, that following Jesus isn't meant to be oppressive, but it's meant to be filled with joy. It's meant to produce within true believers joy. Following Jesus, according to this, means that, that true following of Christ is that it brings peace and it brings vitality. Following Jesus leads to gratitude, humility, selflessness, and hope. 
It's not only about following a bunch of rules as much as it's about following a person who loves us intentionally and at much cost to himself. So Jesus' first invitation is come to me and his second invitation is to take his yoke upon you. Jesus is basically saying, take off the pursuit of perfection. Take off the comparing yourself to everybody else. Take off the, I've got to prove myself. Take off the, I'm trying to, you know, I got to live according to this long list of self-imposed rules, void of any true love for God or other people. Take upon his yoke. Accept the good news of Jesus that as Tim Keller says often, We're more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. How is this so? There must be a price to pay because nobody loves like that. Nobody forgives like that. Nobody sacrifices like that. Nobody puts up with difficult people like that. Nobody's patient like that. And the big idea is, yeah, that's true, but Jesus is. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the good one. And he says, come to me, take my yoke, remove your crummy, dirty, self-righteous yoke. Take mine. Come to me. Find rest here. And so what I want you to do this morning is I want you to ask yourself, where do my stresses come from? Where do my insecurities come from? Where do my fears come from? Examine yourself this morning. What have you been told growing up that made you do the things and made you believe the things that you do? You know, maybe maybe you were never good enough for dad, so you're still working endlessly to gain his acceptance. Maybe you, you were abused and you've never shaken off this fear of being hurt again. Maybe you've never shaken some deep sense of just in the the deep cavernous depths of your soul that you're just unclean and there's something wrong and you don't know what it is. Maybe it was an important relationship growing up, whether it be parents or a teacher or some leader in your life and that person hurt you in some way and now you walk through life with a limp and that manifests itself through depression or insecurity or maybe you're deeply critical or you're cynical or you're just sad. And Jesus says, come to me, take my yoke, I'll give you rest. And if right now, especially if you're a religious type person, you might be thinking, that's me, I've got to fix this. I've got to work harder at this. Stop, stop. That's not the answer. The answer in many ways is to quit doing in this case. And it looks more like surrender. It looks more like surrender. In many ways, your doing is what's getting you in so much trouble. See, some of us, we overdo. We overact, right? We eat too much, drink too much, smoke too much, work too much, waste too much, think too much, do, do, do. It's all doing too much. And what what we're saying is that if you get to the point where you're done, where you're exhausted, where you're wounded, where you're walking with a limp and you're ready to throw in the towel. What Jesus' invitation is, finally, come here, brother. Come here, sister. Joy is here. Peace is here. Rest is found in me.
So I want to give just an example. Um, it's funny because Amber and I and my wife were watching um, a show on Netflix called Mad Men. And it's set in the mid-60s um, at the fictional Sterling Cooper ad firm. I'm not recommending it to you. It's not, this isn't like focus on the family type television. Um, it's pretty dark, dirty. It shows the just realistic issues of the time. And I really enjoy it. Um, be honest. I really enjoy it. I'm constantly, but I'm constantly, I don't tell my wife because it would drive her insane, but I'm constantly interpre- interpreting this show in theological terms as I'm watching it. And uh, Don Draper, he's played by John Hamm, and he's the protagonist in the show. And you watch Don kind of, he, he starts out, he goes from creative director to partner, and you see his rise to success and fortune, right? And all the while, he's this drunken, womanizing, past-haunted, cynical individual. And this past week, um, I was reading Time Magazine, and I read an article where, where they're interviewing John Hamm about his character. And I just thought, I thought his response was incredible. I thought his response was incredible. So Time asks him, they say, are you surprised how much a lot of fans like Don Draper? And John Hamm responds, I'm always surprised when people are like, I want to be just like Don Draper. I'm like, you want to be a miserable drunk? I don't think you want to be anything like that guy. You want to be like the guy on a poster maybe, but not the actual guy. The actual guy's rotting from the inside out and has to pull it all together. But again, that's one of the biggest schemes on, on the show. The outside looks great. The inside is rotten. That's New York City. That's America in the 60s. That's all that stuff. It all looks great, and when you scratch the surface, you're like, oh, it's hollow and it's rotten. It's advertising. Put some Vaseline on that food. Make it shine and look good. Can't eat it, but it looks good. This is fascinating to me that he said this, because I think this is absolutely true. I think this is absolutely true. It it describes us so well. So all throughout the show, you see Don Draper work endlessly to achieve some sense of success. He works endlessly to achieve some sense of happiness, some sense of peace, and it never happens. It never happens. With every client they land, they need more clients. They need bigger clients. No matter how much money Don makes, it doesn't quench the satisfaction that you think it would bring. His marriage falls apart. His kids live out of town in the suburbs. And almost all of his relationships seem toxically superficial and transactional. But the, the, what, what, where I'm going with this is, isn't this so often how we are? Isn't this so often where we go? Maybe not to this extreme, But don't we work hard for things that ultimately won't bring us joy? We work hard for things that ultimately aren't going to bring us peace and aren't going to bring us rest. We try to find ultimate satisfaction in stuff that will never satisfy the deep cavern of our soul. And we grow weary. We grow frustrated. And what do we do? We become resolute to work harder. 
thinking that if we could just get over this hump, if we could just land that promotion, if we could just, you know, bump up past the next tax income bracket, if we could just achieve some certain level of fame or recognition, then we'd be okay. Then we'd be happy. Then things in our life would be fixed. And it's a lie. And it's a cycle. You know, it's like an old show that's on a constant rerun and for some reason we're blind to it. This narrative has played over and over and over again in our lives and in the lives of others. And Jesus breaks into this narrative and he says, hey, come to me, take my yoke, follow me, I'll give you the rest you need. I'll give you the rest you need. So then you can enjoy your work. You can have a good marriage. You can enjoy success. You can enjoy your kids. You can keep your head together in failure. Why? Because your identity is being found in Jesus, not in those things. Third thing we see, third invitation. Jesus says, learn from me. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, learn about me. Notice my example. Follow my example. He says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, again, first, it's an invitation. And this invitation is to learn about Jesus. So what was Jesus' example? How was he lowly and gentle in heart? Well, first off, he became lowly by coming down from the perfection of heaven, taking on human flesh and living amongst us, us sinners, He lived the human experience. He knows everything that we face. Why? Because he lowered himself and he felt what temptation is like. He felt what hunger feels like. He knows longing. He knows pain. He knows the toil of life. He experienced the fallenness and the sinfulness of man. And he did this for us. He lived a selfless, sacrificial, humble life here on earth, and we're to emulate his example. We're to learn from Jesus. We must learn that greatness isn't the way, that power isn't the way, that conquering ideas isn't the way, but that Jesus is the way. And his way is the opposite of the ways of this world. Jesus' way is that of selfless love, of humble servants, and of forgiveness. See, the Jews expected a Messiah that would take over by force to crush the Romans, to exterminate the pagan Gentiles. This is what they hoped for. This is often what we hope for. Kill the bad people and let the good people live. But what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't rise to political power like his contemporaries wanted him to. He gave attention to the orphan and the widow, to the prostitute and the sickly. He gave attention to the average normal person in need and ultimately was killed for us, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament. We must follow the way of Christ. We must learn from him. And this learning takes intentionality. It takes this learning, this kind of learning takes practice. So instead of seeing the world through the lens of what our culture tells us to believe, we must see the world through the lens of the Bible and who Jesus is. 
But in order for that to become a reality in each of your lives, we must approach this king. We must approach the Christ. We must must approach Jesus. So the invitations are clear. Come to me. Take my yoke. Learn from me. Now we must respond. The worst sin that any of us could ever commit is unbelief. Is unbelief. Why? Because ultimately unbelief leads to separation from God. It's a logical conclusion. We must respond by putting our faith in Jesus. So we should approach Christ, we should take on his yoke, and we should learn from his example. The gospel demands a response, and then we see what this kind of gospel response produces. And the last point is this, that that this kind of gospel response produces a light burden and soul rest. There are three invitations and one wonderful promise. Once we approach Jesus, take on his purposes, learn from him, it produces a deep gospel rest. It's not like other spiritualities and religions where you have to earn your keep and your good works produce your right standing with God. True Christianity is light in that our our right standing before God is accomplished by what Jesus did, not by what we do. Once this becomes real to you, once you realize that all your work, all your striving, all your working your way towards something is not satisfying to you, once you realize that despite your small success or your large successes, you're not happy and it's never enough, once the gospel of Jesus becomes real to you and you realize that ultimately what you most need is not more of what you already have, but Christ, that's when you'll find this deep rest. This is when you experience the gospel. This is when Christianity is something that will become real to you. And so this morning, right now, Don't tally up a million things that you should be doing. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Make the decision in your heart right now to follow him, to learn his way, to read his word, to engage in Christian community, the church. Look for ways to learn about him. Look for ways to know him more deeply. And the promise that we see in this text is that this will bring us deep soul rest. This is what it means to be found in Jesus. This is what it means to be a true Christian. And if you decide to follow Jesus for the first time this morning and become a Christian, let one of us know. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to answer any of your questions. If you need prayer this morning, a few of us will be in the back and we'd love to pray with you. But the big idea this morning is come to Jesus, take on his yoke, learn from him and receive his light burden and his gospel rest. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your grace and what that just means is goodness towards those that don't deserve it. And you're very gracious because based on our own efforts and our merits and what we've done in our life, we don't deserve goodness. Each one of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not, struggle often. And even our good works are really sometimes just kind of, they're, they're 
intertwined with all of this selfishness and we want people to think well of us and we want to be perceived as nice and all these sorts of things. And really deep down, we're just rotten, selfish people and we need your grace. And so God, my prayer this morning is that we would come as honest people, not just some weird religious thing where we, where we just say a few words and move on. But God, really what the Bible teaches is that true Christianity, it, it impacts and it affects every part of our life. And it produces a humble person. It produces a grateful person. It produces a, a peaceful person. And God, I just pray that each person in this room would realize that that invitation is open for them despite how they came in this morning. They might have you know, come in um, as an addicted person, as a sinful person, as a mean person, as a person who thinks this is all really stupid. It doesn't matter, God. The invitation is that, is that your love is for them as well. If we would put our faith in you, if we would repent of our sins. And so God, um, we, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.